Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm Glenn Holmstrom, Professor of Art at Newman University. In this podcast, Elizabeth Guffey, Professor of Art and Design History, State University of New York at Purchase, Matt Fronto, Associate Professor of Design, Westchester Community College, and Rebecca Mushter, Associate Professor of Graphic Design at the State University of New York at Oswego, discuss bringing access to design practice, teaching inclusion in the 21st century. Rebecca, to you, as a design educator, what is accessibility? To me, it's really about having access to all public spaces, physical or electronic, and specifically accessibility, like this quality accessibility, is designed to make sure that people with disabilities can perceive, understand, navigate, and interact with you know, spaces or electronic media. My particular interest is with electronic media. So there's a couple of qualities we generally look for, is that it's open and usable by all. We remove barriers. Um, it's something that's measurable. And there are kind of international standards for electronic media um, to make sure that they work with all assistive technology. And I'm a real advocate for accessibility or designing with accessibility in mind because it's a proactive strategy where you plan that from the start rather than try to remediate or make accommodations for folks afterwards. Elizabeth, for you, like as a design historian, who teaches, uh, who teaches the history of accessibility and how do you define the subject? Yeah, you know, I don't know if I really relate to the subject as a design historian or more as a disabled person, because to me, accessibility really comes down to questions of exclusion, which I'm painfully aware of in my day-to-day life. That is, you know, if you're disabled, you're often excluded. I was just thinking about it, and the whole root of this podcast comes from an experience I had with a bunch of design educators where we were in this group, and we went out to lunch, and when we got back to the building we were in, there was a revolving door, and everybody could go through the revolving door except for me, and in New York City, there's a law that you have to have a swing door close by a revolving door for access reasons, I guess, but when I went over to it, it was locked, so the rest of the group went on into the building and started without me, and I had to stand there waiting for a security guard to come over. Uh, So, you know, for me, I guess it's true, I was not able to access that building, but really what it felt like was that I was being excluded. Um, So for me, some a lot of this, these issues revolve around the material world, I was born with cerebral palsy, so it makes um, things difficult, you know, to get in and out. But for my teaching, uh, I do have a sense that there are a lot of digital revolving doors out there that affect other people. And so for me, I'm more interested in that. To me, I would say that the best way I think of this is to ask myself constantly, who is being excluded here? So maybe that's too personal of an answer, but um, for me, access is a very loosely defined term, and sometimes it's used erroneously. I really, Elizabeth, I really appreciate like that kind of metaphor and that that cut of the revolving door, no matter what the media or the location is, and also that question. And I think we could all be asking that question constantly, especially as we're making media. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that the important issue is also that we in the academy don't think about this very much, but we're really the ones who are shaping that world, whether it's in terms of architecture, putting in revolving doors, 
or like I say, in the digital realm. So when I started to get interested in this, I actually started calling around to see who was actually teaching this. And I didn't find many people. Uh, I wound up actually at IBM with their um, access team. And they told me that they are currently, with every designer they hire, having to put them into a boot camp, an access boot camp, to teach their designers stuff that are not being taught in the academy. So, um, you know, I then worked with Teach Access, which is a consortium of um, industry leaders, and they say that they're trying to put this into their basic job description, that is knowledge of accessibility and design. But I find, even with that, that the gap, the problem here is really more with American communication design courses. We don't teach this. Why do you think that is, Rebecca? I think that's the hundred dollar question, right? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But I I think you're right. And I know from practice that my students, I I teach some accessibility in my classes and the students that have that background are getting jobs so easily because they have a little bit of that experience. I suspect though that most of the issue comes from a real lack of familiarity with like laws and regulations about uh, these issues in the U.S. And uh, in particular, that most of them are associated with maybe web design specifically or like physical spaces. And so maybe most of communication design doesn't feel like they're included in that piece. But I think there's a big there was a big surge last year in 2017 of federal cases uh, alleging inaccessible websites Um, many of which were academic institutions. Most of those cases settled outside of of court um, and resulted in websites and things being remediated so that they became accessible. But the first trial on web accessibility was actually in 2017 with a a grocer called Winnie Dix. Um, And uh, the judge found that the $250,000 that it would cost to remediate the site was not an undue burden. So I think this stuff is just starting to really get in the news, right, and and get more visibility. So I think more people are becoming aware and wanting to address, um, address the issues. Since 2010, uh, the Department of Justice has been uh, developing and trying to clarify rules on how websites fit into the public accommodation laws that we have in the U.S. Um, but unfortunately, uh, these rules or the the process of making these rules uh, with was officially withdrawn on December 26 of 2017. So that's an, an unfortunate kind of uh, halt to some good momentum to improve uh, the online experience for many people. In 2006, the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities uh, defines accessibility as a human right. Um, So the ideas are starting to become very global and the conversation is happening uh, internationally. In 2012, the Worldwide Consortium, or the W3C, established the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, uh, WCAG 2.0, as the established international standard by the International Organization for Standardization. So it really wasn't until 2012 that we had like an official standard. So, you know, it's still relatively new. And it wasn't until earlier this year, 2018, that the U.S. actually adopted that international standard as the national standard. So legally, like we've been really far behind on these things, but now it's something that we need to be focusing on and we're starting to have more of the information that we need to be able to focus on it. And I would also just say that professional associations like 
the College Art Association, AIGA, the Graphic Artists Guild and things haven't taken this, this issue directly on. But in other countries, the professional organizations have. So for example, in Canada, the Registered Graphic Designers Association or RGD is a really good model. They took it on, they worked with their local government in Ontario and helped define the rules and then also provided a lot of training. They require a test for designers to become registered graphic designers and accessibility is now a key piece of, of that test. The other pieces to think about is that our accrediting body uh, for most of us is NASAD and it's uh, accessibility isn't defined as an essential competency for communication design. And then I guess finally, I would say that uh, I think it's often seen as a technical sort of component and maybe there's a lack of training or expertise on the issue. So there's a wide range of kind of competing things that I think have prevented people from taking it on. It can feel like a burden. It can feel like it takes extra time. But I think it's something that is becoming more important and that we that we need to tackle. Yes, it's a, a lot of people do feel a little cowed by it. And yet it's becoming more and more of interest to a lot of people, even in um, the site sidebar recently had a little uh, medium article, 10 tips for making accessibility into a core design principle. So we've seen, including this very conversation, a lot of interest bubbling up on how to take hold of it and begin to shape it. Elizabeth, there's a lot of talk about being more inclusive in design history courses too. Uh, but there seems to be more of an emphasis on gender, race, and ethnicity. Disability is rarely mentioned. Why do you think that is? You know, maybe it's ignorance or lack of awareness, um, or maybe just people don't know it's actually part of the law. Maybe they assume that it's just been taken care of. I think it's a little deceptive because there are all these blue and white signs around, you know, the um, wheelchair figure is posted everywhere. And in terms of public buildings, we actually did make a lot of strides, especially in the 70s and 80s. But there's a lot of unfinished work there, and those signs are deceptive. Um, you know, nobody's really dealt with, say, private spaces. And then, like I say, all these new technologies um, have come along. The American um, the Americans with Disability Act, which is the ADA, is also just really written loosely. So there's a very small oversight board in charge with enforcing it. And the way that usually enforcement happens is, as you say, unfortunately, through lawsuits. And so that's a problem, I would say. It's costly. It puts the burden onto disabled people to pursue these lawsuits. And I think it also creates a lot of ill will around disability and following the ADA. We've probably all read those stories about small business getting hit with um, enormous lawsuit for what seems like a relatively frivolous misplacement of a door hand, not a, even a door handle, like a mirror or something like that. And Elizabeth speaking of the ill will there really does, it doesn't become a community thing. It becomes a, a litigious element instead. Yeah. So I guess um, this brings us back to this question of why are we um, discussing this when there are so many issues around it as a practical problem? Um, I'm curious, Rebecca, when did you first become interested in teaching accessibility principles to your design students? In 2012, I, I, I moved from New York City back to upstate New York. And in upstate New York, there's a there's a huge aging population and the healthcare industry is one of our biggest industries in this area. So in part I I started getting interested when I started thinking about like who would our students 
be working for or with in terms of as designers, as professionals in the area. Um, so that was part of it. You know, and I started looking into it. You know, one in five people in the U.S. have a disability. By 2030, all baby boomers uh, will be older than 65. That means that one in five Americans over the will be in the group of uh, 65 and older. And that's the first time in American history that there will be more older adults than, you know, kids under the age of 18. So there's a big shift of in age, right? And then as we age, there tends to be a lot of age-related disability as well. So my first kind of foray into this area was working with aging populations and dealing with some local issues at some adult care facilities and making sure that residents could have easy access to digital t- the digital technology that they wanted to use to um, interact with their families. And I think we're going to see more and more of this, right? Most people in the baby boomer generation are used to using digital technologies to keep up with their family and friends, and they're going to want to continue using those as they get older. So, you know, as designers, we need to start designing for that, and we haven't been. Elizabeth, when did you first get interested in starting to teach it? So you talked a little bit about being more aware from your own personal experience, but what what prompted you to really investigate it and, and embed it into your teaching practice? Yeah, you know, um, I had cerebral palsy all my life. <laughs> that hasn't changed. But it really took me um, years into my teaching career to even start thinking about it. And it was based on a situation in which the building that has my office and that I teach in usually was renovated. And I was part of the process of renovating the interior. They consulted me about questions of um, access and exclusion. But nobody told me that they were also remaking the exterior of the building um, without consulting me or any users. So several months before the whole thing opened, reopened, uh, I discovered that they had moved all the disabled parking. And so basically, Although I, the building inside was accessible, I couldn't get into it. <laughs> so for me, it's not helpful if the building itself is inclusive, but there's no way to access the building. And I was upset. And, you know, it's still there are still problems with that whole situation. Um, so I've tried to channel what was a lot of unhappiness into my teaching and in my research and writing, too. Yeah, at this building, all the disabled parking spaces have been pushed to this distant perimeter around the building. So they were as near as you could get to it um, through parking, but they were, they had been moved, what, 50 yards away or something. So it was a really questionable decision. That's interesting because I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not super familiar with all of the physical pieces of the ADA, but, you know, they have a lot of rules about bathroom locations and number of bathrooms and all of that. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of it's about like how many parking spots, not necessarily where. Yeah, that's actually one of the hallmarks of uh, American disability law uh, and the way we've tried to handle that problem is that they're supposed to be paying attention not just to having a certain number of things, but also pathways. <laughs> that is making sure that one accessible feature is linked to another. And um, I just don't think that was the people who did that renovation were aware of that. So Matt, uh, you've also started to think about teaching accessibility in your courses. Um, so what prompted you? And a lot of that comes from living with you. You know, I've always known how hard it is for Elizabeth to function in a world that's really not built for her in mind. And through that, you know, I can recognize things like, okay, there are 
X number of parking places set aside for the disabled, but none of these parking places are actually terribly helpful for the disabled. Elizabeth mentioned the the ubiquity of the blue handicap signs. I like almost everybody now grew up seeing those. And for many years, just thought like anybody else, when I saw one of those, that meant a problem solved, not a complicated situation for somebody to have to enter into. In fact, the other day I saw a, a display of computers at Costco and right about hip level, there was a little blue handicap sign. Um, I'm not sure what that meant, but to many people, it probably meant, okay, these computers are, you know, disabled access or something. They're, you know, we've solved a problem here, but now I see the blue handicap sign and start to see that it's, it's more complicated and, you know, not necessarily just a solution. Working with this, and it really became um, uh, apparent working with Elizabeth just informally and reading over her, her uh, page proofs for her book, Designing Disability, that broadened my awareness of disability. And then as a teacher of graphic design, I started to realize, okay, that's an issue here too. I always assumed, um, you know, I'm teaching you know, at a community college, fairly, you know, foundational courses, and figured, okay, well, this is going to be a higher level problem, um, something that will be addressed. And, you know, so when students leave, say, a four-year program, they're going to be equipped and ready for this. But really, you know, let's be honest, that's going to, now where I'm starting to realize that that's simply a question of remediation, rethinking, retooling, etc. And so I've come to see that designing for access is really a foundational principle. So I started to look into this, and I, I couldn't remember seeing any designing for disability info in many of the, you know, very popular books, you know, everybody would know them, or online resources that I used to develop course content. I, I thought I must have just overlooked them. But when I really went and dug into those, I found that there really aren't very many defined principles or, pra or established best practices for designing for disability. So now I'm just starting to work towards integrating accessibility principles in a level one course. I'd like to start treating it as a core principle like negative space or gestalt, the kind of stuff that's usually interest, you know, int introduced in a level one class. One of the things I wanted to just touch on that you said, Matt, was, you know, the idea that you see like these symbols around in, in space and it's just like someone just checked a box and never really <laughs> thought about, you know, like why it's there or what purpose it serves. So I think that's that's something that I've been really frustrated with is like we can easily check boxes. That's easy to do. But if you're really thinking about the purpose of something and improving people's lives, right, and, and making an impact, then it has to go far deeper than that. And I think, yeah. you know, going back to some of our earlier, some of the things that we were saying earlier about like legal cases and stuff, I think that's where a lot of the box checking can happen and some of that ill will can happen rather than really thinking through the process. Mm -hmm. So I just like that you kind of pointed that out. Elizabeth, like, how do you... How do you teach about accessibility, inclusive design practices and disability in your design courses? You know, these are often histories that are completely erased from our traditional design canon. Yeah, that's true. It really doesn't figure into design history. Um, if you're lucky, maybe somebody will teach a little bit of something about the 1970s and 80s, you know, and the advent of universal design. 
Uh, it's actually, if you put this on as a lens, a different way of seeing the history of design, or frankly, the history of art as well, it really allows you to start seeing everything in a new sort of way. So, for example, with my students, we talk about ideas like normal or average. And I think they all think that that's been around forever, those ideas. But they're really not. Like the idea of normal comes out of the Industrial Revolution and standardization in the 19th century. And the idea average is really linked to the birth of statistics. There's a lot of space to talk about this stuff, too, in terms of civil rights. Um, it actually is uh, a, the design of civil rights that we're talking about. The Americans with Disabilities Act is part of our um, le civil rights legislation in the U.S. And, it, you know, it impacts design in a whole lot of ways, too. Uh, there's also, though, been um, newer kinds of ideas that are floating around out there. So we used to talk about universal design a lot, but actually, and that means also that we're imagining a world which has been designed for everybody. But I'm hearing more and more about the term design for one. And that, too, is interesting. That, too, should be talked about a little bit more fully. That is, instead of one size fits all, we're moving to something that seems more like one size fits one. Kind of moving back into the medieval era there where everybody everything is bespoke right how does one how does one ma manage that with you know the population of what 12 billion or <laughs> of the of the world so rebecca we we're talking about the um you know, incorporating uh design into um also studio courses and you know i was running into questions there how clearly there's not too many examples of how to teach design for disability. How do you see this fitting into a full design curricula? And what is the lowest level course that you teach uh, personally? That's a, that's a good question. And, and, and true. Uh, when I first started teaching about accessibility, which was in I think 2012, I couldn't find any good examples, right? Like I was, I was looking at these like really highly technical resources that were targeted more at like computer programmers and things because I was teaching web. And it was also looking at resources uh, with people who study gerontology. Like how do, how do they like help uh -huh. people establish empathy? So where I started and where I ended up is, is two very different places, but it was really hard to get started. Um, the lowest level that I currently teach accessibility at is at the 300 level, but that's the lowest class that I personally teach. The lowest level class I teach is an introduction to web design. Um, so it is beginning, right? It's a, it's a beginning kind of course in a particular subject area, but it's at the 300 level at our institution. And there's obviously foundation courses and things below that. I would really, really, really love to see accessibility built in from the foundation and actually integrated throughout. You know, I think that it's problematic if we start thinking about accessibility or inclusion as like a separate idea in like a separate class. I think it needs to be a part of our integrated practice. So, and I also think that if we wait until the 300 and 400 level to introduce the idea, we kind of introduce the idea that it's an afterthought because it becomes an afterthought because we're doing it later. So I think it's really fundamental and I think we should be trying to get it earlier, you know, but it, it mm -hmm. you know, culture change takes time. Um, so I think, you know, as we can kind of sprinkle it in, we should. How do you see accessibility being integrated into curricula at, at the community college level? Well, I hope that community college faculty and administrators out there will all decry my ignorance and make me aware of what I'm missing. 
because I'm not aware personally of any broad efforts towards actually accomplishing this. I think there's a lot of like informal discussion. Um, if any such effort, though, is underway throughout community colleges, I would love to learn more and even participate in, in as much as I'm able. We've got our own practices in inclusion, exclusion at AIG upstate New York coming up um, in Syracuse on October 27th. And that's I, probably one of many, many little uh, conversations that are going on right now. But I'm, I'm not aware of any larger community college effort that's different than, say, you know, it's different than four-year schools throughout the country. Rebecca, how did you, you have integrated this, um, you know, accessibility, at least into a 300-level course. And I totally agree that bring it in later sends a message to students that this is, this is advanced or extra or something else. It's, it's interesting how it mirrors the larger social issue that we're talking about right now, the remediation. Um, so, but what specific steps have you taken to, to uh, introduce it into some of these courses? I can share a little bit about the trajectory a little bit so that you can kind of see how my thinking has changed a bit over time as I've gotten more involved. I started off by doing like simulation exercises. So um, specifically about like old age, right? So kind of some common eyesight issues that happen as you age, arthritis, things like that, and gave students the opportunity to try some of the assistive technologies that would be available to people, you know, so... I have a joystick mouse and stuff that you can use if you have arthritis in your hands that's a little bit easier to navigate and, you know, so that they could experience some of these other things. But one, one thing that happened when I was doing those simulations is obviously they're simulations and they're not real life and it's not a substitute for it, is that a student said, man, I really don't want to get old. It sucks to be old. And it just hit me that, like, this is not really the message I was trying to send at all. Right. That wasn't the point. So I was looking for other ways to have a much more productive conversation than that one. Right. Like I had exposed it. Right. And and yeah, they had some experience with it, but it, it just didn't quite sit right. And, you know, the same thing was true about, you know, disability. I had a couple of uh, exercises that were related to that as well. And I was just like, man, it really sucks to be disabled. And that wasn't the message that I wanted to send, but rather, you know, there's assistive technologies that can be really great, but we need to design with those in mind. And, you know, and that everybody is a member of our audience, right? Were some of the things that I was trying to get out. So I, I struggled with that for a long time, troubleshooting different things. I, I developed a project called the simulated client project where uh, I invented these little businesses that had a key target audience of someone who might have a particular disability or who are aging, who would be different from the students. And we did some one-on-one -on -one interactions with people in the community to kind of learn more about members of that community. And that worked okay. But I found that students really had a hard time talking about disability, again, like in a productive way. So the latest iteration of that particular project is a completely invented landscape of uh, based on the story of the three little pigs, which sounds crazy. It was completely outlandish, and I just was like really desperate to try something, anything. And so it was based on this multiple retellings of the three little pigs from different points of view, including the wolf and what have you, and people and, and some related wolf stories. And we ended up using those almost as ethnographies to learn about the community. 
And what unfolded is that, you know, pigs have hooves, so they can't do certain kinds of things on a mobile technology, right? Then there was dragons, so like their mobile devices were really big, so mobile devices were all different sizes. So all the issues that we were hitting in design, right, around issues of disability and aging were coming out in these conversations, and also race, race and ethnicity too, like all of the things were coming out. But what was nice is that the students could have that conversation in a non-judgmental way because they felt like like it wasn't real, right? So that they could have those conversations. But we had some really intense, really valuable conversations that allowed students to practice talking about these issues um, that I, I thought was really helpful that then I can take in the advanced classes and move into like real life again. But I felt like it helped to move into this fantasy world a little bit um, so that we could develop some language. And what I'm working on right now is I got one of the Teach Act Access faculty grants to develop more uh, materials. And so uh, this semester will be the first time that I have integrated accessibility entirely throughout the entire semester and all projects. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that goes. Um, and then the other place that I've taught it a little bit is in the capstone class, which again, I feel like is an afterthought and not, not the best solution. But I felt like it was really necessary for students who didn't take web design or another class where accessibility was taught to at least be exposed to it. So we talked about implicit bias. I developed a kind of a check sheet for students and a worksheet for students to look at their portfolios to see where they might have some biases sort of in the work that they had in their portfolio. And we talked about that a little bit and how to how to maybe make some alterations or edits to improve the quality of their portfolio. And then I also made sure that everyone knew how to make accessible PDFs by designing stuff in InDesign correctly um, so that they can export it as an accessible PDF, which I thought was a really important skill set for them to have. But again, I think those are an afterthought kind of approach that is not the best. And even these you, you indicated are helping students to launch their careers. Yes. So that's, uh, that's terrific. Yeah. Uh, it's funny, like the, the first people I always hear back from are the ones who kind of latched on to the idea of accessibility. Like those are the ones that are getting really good jobs very quickly mm -hmm. out of school. So there's a need. We need to meet that. Yeah. Yeah. Elizabeth, are there key examples of inclusive design that that you include in your um, design history courses that we should all be aware of? Well, yeah, I wrote that book, Designing Disability, which is a history of the access symbol that is the wheelchair figure. Um, it's a key icon. It makes a great kind of example of how we've struggled with these ideas for some time. And it's changed a lot. So I was going over the different iterations and how they reflect our changing views in society about this issue. So certainly, I think that icon and talking about the background behind it can be really helpful. One thing that Elizabeth's book does, let me just say, is that it introduces two very different views about disability and how to handle it. There is the American view and then there's a European view. And the weird thing is that the disability symbol that we're aware of now is literally a combination between Americans and uh, Europeans. So like the, the head was stuck. What it really is, is uh, a wheelchair on which a head has been stuck which sort of uh, materializes the, uh, the the different views of this. So it's really fascinating seeing, you know, literally seeing how different um, 
we think that we in Europe are basically the same there, but actually we're quite different. It also indicates, you know, that a lot of the world, you know, we think that that things are, you know, difficult here, et cetera. But the very notion of disability, et cetera, and, and accessibility is very different throughout the world, too. You know, this American European axis that we're on is just one of, of several you know views about this. I think I would just uh, also echo that it's so important for people in design to read Elizabeth's book. You know, it's it's a history that we don't often know about and we should all really take advantage of knowing. Right. Like I'm, I'm really thankful that Elizabeth wrote that book and I certainly enjoyed reading it this summer. Thanks. <laughs> I tried really hard to make it readable, especially uh, I meant for the introduction to be used by, um, by teachers as a kind of beginning um, opening up for a conversation, too. Yeah. And I think I think it, it's a, one of the few resources available to help faculty do that. Speaking of which, uh, can you recommend other ways to bring disability studies, that point of view into classes that are more practice oriented? You know, do you have good readings or other other things that we could be thinking about? Yeah, you know, it's really hard being disabled, and especially if the world is not configured with you in mind. But something that gets really lost is that there's also something maybe kind of um, gratifying, at least in a sense of learning how to improvise and make all these adaptations. And some of the most resilient people I know are disabled people because that's what you have to do. And there's this deep level of creativity where you're constantly having to remake things to get them to work for you. And I think that it's actually something for us to think about more broadly as designers. So there are a lot of design is out there that's been made for disabled people. But it's not often made with disabled people themselves who can also have a lot to add to these conversations. So, um, yes, I think that disabled people are often just brought into this design process at the very end. And they're sometimes even just taught how to use things that are intended for them. And that doesn't work so well. Um, Liz Jackson, uh, who has been working a lot with the idea of designing with, not for disabled people. And I think that's something that designers could really think about some. That is that idea that disabled people themselves can be experts on the subject and consulted as such. Liz wrote a great editorial in the New York Times a couple of months ago. It's called We Are the Original Life Hackers. And she pretty much outlines these ideas. And she's right. Another touchstone, which is really good, is Sarah Hendren, who um, has written a kind of manifesto. And it's on um, the web. And she calls it This Counts Too. And it's a she calls it engineering at home, but it might as well be designing at home, too. And she looks into the kind of creativeness and uh, resources that disabled people have really been able to bring to bear on their own lives because designers um, don't necessarily think about them at all. Both of those are such great, great reads and such wonderful resources as a way to start changing the way that kind of our design community starts thinking about design who and who's a designer and who should be involved in the design process. And I guess it's also a way of dealing with this problem that we were touching on earlier, which is that some people will approach inclusive design, you know, from a point of, of anger or fear even. 
And they're, I think, afraid that, you know, if we start to reveal problems that somehow they're going to be blamed for the existence of the problems to begin with, or they're afraid that they're going to be told that they've been doing things wrong from the start. So I guess I see that as a hurdle in itself. And I'm wondering, how would you recommend teaching students to address what that, which is what I often call the fear factor around this? I think you're right, Elizabeth. The fear factor is not just students, but also faculty, right? If we if we haven't been trained in disability studies or we haven't been trained, and it, and it extends beyond disability to all, all kinds of diversity, right, that, that we might be uncomfortable with um, because we have lack of experience or don't have the practice to talk about it, and we're afraid of offending people, right? Like all of those things uh, can get in our way of, of trying something. Um, and I think that when we're teaching, we need to remember that the best way for students to learn is in a situation where, you know, they can safely fail without kind of fear of repercussions. So I think it's our challenge to come up with safe places to make mistakes and opportunities to practice those conversations and really talk about these things and, and allow us to make mistakes, right? And, and course correct and recognize that as teachers, we might make mistakes too, and own that, you know, we're not all perfect. And, you know, we're all learning together. And sometimes that means like really making an effort to try something new. And I think there's also a, a really strong perception that people with disabilities is not necessarily the audience for who we're designing for. And that's just not true. So I think we have to work on that too. What resource do you think we need to like help us with this? Yeah, I, uh, well, we've probably done a bad job of making people aware. Most people actually, I suspect, want to help, um, but they just they don't know. I mean, a good um, introduction is just to start thinking about the Americans with Disabilities Act, which actually does cover design. So um, to this day, um, I will say that there is a surprising amount of pushback on this. On the one hand, design for disabled people like I say, it's often being made in a lab or an office without disabled people around. But you also have designers who worry that maybe if they design something to be accessible, no one's going to love it. Or clients worry about the resources like time and money. So I'm curious, how do we as educators change this culture uh, that's around accessibility? There's a couple things. There's both clients and then there's students, I guess, you know, because it's a professional thing. We might start thinking about clients reframing this issue of accessibility as a focus on greater market share and profitability. The fact is that there is money to be made by reaching more people. And within the design community itself, somewhat like recycling, my guess is there's a strong demographic that will respond positively to companies and products that inhabit a kind of socially responsible space possibly even more so than recycling, which has its own kind of, you know, pushback. Um, because the fact is disability and accessibility are human-based. They're people-focused. Um, everybody is going to know somebody who is going to be helped by this. It isn't quite as abstract as um, saving the earth or something like that. And also, as going way back to Rebecca's um, reference to uh, aging populations in, in, the, in her region, and throughout the United States, et cetera, um, 
disability is a state that everyone goes through and beginning to more emphasize that like students who are 18 might feel, you know, uncomfortable with disability, you know, and say, yeah, it's true. Getting old sucks. You know, I can barely read a menu anymore. But the fact is we're, you know, we started out as babies or, you know, if we're lucky, we're going to get very old and there's all kinds of states that are going to intervene. You know, if you have a knee operation or something, you suddenly find it much more difficult to move through space. And then for students, more than anything else, just introducing it as this core principle to the point where students roll their eyes and act bored about it, just the way they do about everything else in the curriculum. Um, (laughs) When students can start making jokes about it, then we will have succeeded. And that just get it into the water. I think that like, just jump in and get going is kind of good advice in this case. I think I would also just add that it's really expensive and very time consuming to remediate materials that are not designed with accessibility in mind in the first place. Uh, Many times, for example, materials are designed for print, but then they're also going to be distributed electronically or something. And that doesn't come out in the beginning of a conversation with a client. So now it has this like dual purpose and it was never designed with that in mind from the beginning. So the more we kind of push clients to think about that and, and to think to get students to think about that, too. From the beginning, the better, because it's a lot easier to do it from the start than it is to fix it later. And then also when things are accessible, it also helps with a whole bunch of other things like SEO, uh, machine learning, um, and also just situational limitations that, you know, Matt had already kind of touched on a little bit. But, you know, being in a loud space and being able to read captions, for example, instead of trying to listen to something, or if you're holding a baby and trying to read or do something else online, you know, now you have one hand. Those are ways that we can all kind of dip into this space and feel like it, like we're a part of it too. um, So it doesn't feel so abstract. But I think one thing that I've learned over time is we have to be careful not to move it too far into that direction, because then the piece of disability gets lost. And I, and I don't want to lose sight of that because I think that that's really important and why all these standards were put in place in the first place. Yeah, just to follow up on that, it's really important to keep in mind that there are a lot of things that were made for disabled people, but by the time they make it out there into market, that aspect of the design gets lost. So, for example, the Cuisinart, you know, the food um, processing machine was actually disa- designed for disabled people. But um, in its marketing and when it became a popular success, that whole element sort of disappeared and it became less accessible than too for disabled people to use. Um, The whole conversation we're having here is nothing new. Uh, I think that we've all known for a long time about the need to design for disabled people on some level, at least as a culture. But what is different that I'm trying to highlight, and Rebecca, what you and Matt are both talking about, is that design teachings has not reacted to this in any substantive way. And I think that's the key that's really gotten lost. What would you recommend a professor interested in teaching accessible design? um, Where should they start? You know, there's a couple of really good readings or resources that people could jump into to start getting more familiar with accessibility and the principles behind it. Uh, I think the easiest and the best and shortest option is RGD's Accessibility, a Practical Handbook on Accessible Graphic Design. Um, It covers everything from print to electronic media, and it's nice and concise, so that's a good option. There's also a web for everyone, Designing Accessible User Experiences by Sarah Horton and Whitney Questenberry. 
you might think that that's kind of a technical book, but it's actually not. It's written in a very accessible way uh, in that you don't have to have a lot of technical expertise to understand it. So I would say that those two would be my top recommendations. And then also learn a little bit more about disability, because I think that's important. And you're going to need to be able to field those kinds of questions in the classroom. I'm also interested in that, um, well, the book that I wrote, Designing Disability, Symbols, Spaces, and Society, has an introduction, which is also meant to introduce the larger kinds of ways of thinking about this. I'd also recommend Amy Hamry's Building Access, Universal Design and the Politics of Disability, which takes disability theory and applies it to design. Uh, Bess Williamson has a book coming out in a couple of months, Accessible America, A History of Disability and Design. And Kat Holmes, who used to work for Microsoft and created the Microsoft Toolkit on this, um, has a book coming out that's called Mismatch, How Inclusion Shapes Design. And of course, there's also, I mentioned Liz Jackson's We're the Original Life Hackers and Sarah Hendred and Katrin Lynch's um, whole manifesto about um, engineering at home. That's it. Thank you all for participating in CAA Conversations.